what is your native language? So uh, we speak a language which nowadays we call Montenegrin. Right. Um, but before the separation of Yugoslavia, it was called Serbo-Croat. Okay. So basically, it's the same language you will have in Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, and Montenegro. Okay, brilliant. So the thing is that what I get every guest to do is to record an introduction, which is just the title of the podcast, to get them to record it in English. Mm-hmm. And then they get them to translate it into their native language. Okay. Obviously, I'm very keen to develop audiences in the Balkan area, so uh, it would be great it's if you could do this. It's terribly, terribly <laughs> important, and there is no fee. Um, uh, so the introduction is: you're listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast. Okay. Okay. So if you just say that in English first, you are listening to thoroughly good classical music podcast. Uh, and now I just need you to translate that in whatever using whatever words you feel are appropriate. Obviously, I'm not going to understand. You. <laughs> no, it always throws people. So it's your listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast. But I have a question: yeah. Is thoroughly good classical music podcast the name of your podcast, yes, or is yes. it just saying it's thoroughly good? Oh no, no. That, well, that, that's the double <laughs> meaning. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, the title is the thoroughly good classical because music we podcast. don't we don't translate titles. Okay, that's why. Try? <laughs> <laughs> what what does thoroughly good mean? To thoroughly good means really good, like yeah. thoroughly good. So, um, you know, if you, however you. So I don't want to hear it in English. I'd like to hear it in a native language. Uh, whatever yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm going to swear. Um, Slušate nevjerovatno dobar podcast o klasičnoj muzici. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. There are times, come on, let's be honest, when we doubt ourselves. We look on the things we've tackled during the day and think, not entirely sure what I actually achieved there. Some might even go a little further and question whether the day may have passed a little more smoothly for everybody else had we not played the part in it we did. In those moments, I retreat. I grab my metaphorical and actual teddy bear, perhaps even a book, and I close the door, turn the lights down low, and revel in the opportunity to ignore the world for 12 hours, or in some cases more. Bleak, possibly, honest, yes. Many of the tracks on guitarist Milosh's new Decca release, Sound of Silence, are the perfect soundtrack to that state of mind. Only there's a glimmer of hope that presents itself when I listen to the album now. Because after 30 minutes in Milosh's company at the pretentiously named Treehouse Hotel that now stands on the site of the former Queen's Hall, the first home of the Promenade Concerts, after 30 minutes with the man, I'm reminded of the need for fire. Milosh's sharp responses are matched by his precise articulation at the fingerboard, carefully chosen words deployed with devastating effect, not to extinguish, crush, dismiss or control but to light the way forward. Sometimes you need those kind of people around, people who know what they want, know how they're going to achieve it, and know exactly when they've got it. And they're people who do it with charm, grace, and respect. 
it is a restorative kind of energy to be on the receiving end of and it's not quite so freely available as you might think. surprising things um, I know you don't like football yeah I think you're right <laughs> you're right about that but I don't think that's surprising for a classical musician uh, okay alright so give me three surprising things that I'm a very good cook right that um, I can be quite lazy really yeah really yeah okay we'll come back to that okay right. yes and number three and number three is that uh, I am obsessed with opera. You look like you were really thinking about that, like you weren't sure. Are you really obsessed with opera? I'm totally obsessed with opera. Uh, okay, so but I was thinking because I'm obsessed about quite a few things. Okay. Uh, well, we'll come back to the opera thing in a moment. How is it that you're lazy? Give me examples of when you're lazy. I don't know. I think my brain is just a program that when I'm home in London that I just somehow can't really do very much because I'm always on the road and when I'm traveling I work really really hard and you know shifting time zones and going from one concert hall to another it's like very very tiring and I always feel like full of energy but when I come home there's something about being home that makes me get lazy and sometimes that's really really annoying isn't that called relaxing? I know, but, but we live in the sort of society and the day and age when that's a bad thing, where we are not supposed to be relaxing. You know, it's like, it's a very crazy world because more and more is always expected. And it's like, if you are having a quiet moment, you immediately think like, oh, I'm being lazy. What did your parents do? Oh, my parents are... Um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that they're, they're no longer alive. <laughs> They are alive, yeah. No, no, no. My, my parents are very much alive. They live in Montenegro and they uh, are both economists. Very hard-working people. Uh, right, I wonder whether that's where it comes from. Do they relax? Do they, no, are they lazy ever? Never, 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 never. My parents are workaholics. So maybe that's, that's maybe I should talk to my psychotherapist about this, not to <laughs> Don't you. Don't worry, I'm here. <laughs> uh, oh, look, here's the coffee. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Uh, I will reach for that shortly. I'll, uh, we'll carry on for now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I confess to um, feeling slightly anxious if I can speak to you. Why? Because I've done some research. I've read a lot of biographies and a lot of press releases. Uh, there are two reasons for it. And the first one is this. When I read the biographies uh, and when I reflect on the Decca summer party that I attended last year where you played something and you were surrounded by balloons... Do you remember that? It was very, very hot. You played. We were, just, we were just expecting a clown to pop up. <laughs> I mean, it was a very slight, it was a slightly odd marketing affair, but it was certainly memorable. Um, what struck me was that from from all of the biographies and press releases, um, <clears throat> people refer to your hand injury, uh, and and because I read a lot of uh, documents like that, I get quite conditioned about 
how things are referred to in such a way that it's giving me direction not to ask any questions about it. When I read those sentences, actually what I want to do internally is go, no, that's the thing that I want to explore. Mm -hmm. That made me feel slightly anxious because it made me wonder whether actually that's a subject that you don't want to explore or that other people want me to avoid. Do you, un do you understand what I mean? I think you're thinking too much about it. Because I have read another interview, thank you very much, I have read another interview when you went into the details of the injury uh, and what impact it had on you. I mean, that, that, it strikes me that it's, it was a major trauma for you. Yeah, and it was something that I actually really wanted to share. And I think the interview that you read was specifically directed at my colleagues, guitar players. Because in the world of classical guitar, it's very easy to, easy to hurt yourself because we play one of the most technically difficult instruments of all. And uh, it requires hours and hours of practice. And at the same time, there isn't enough awareness about physical health while you are doing it. And there is this sort of idea that, you know, if it hurts, you have to push through. And if it's something's not working, it's because you're being lazy or because you're not giving enough attention to it. Is that, is that in the guitar world or is that in the performance I think, world? Do you think? I think it spills to other uh, instruments as well. It's just the nature of being a, a perfectionist, classical musician and wanting, you know, to, to be great at what you're doing. But, but I think in the guitar world, it's maybe more prominent because... It's a very isolated world, unlike other. For example, piano world is much more open, or the, or the violin. You know, it's just there's all of all this chamber music and collaborations. It's just a very different ball game. But I think in the specific guitar world, injury is just not talked about. And what I have seen through my experience, having gone through it myself, um, I mean that's a whole other subject, like why and all of that. But um, but having seen how it's dealt with, what's being advised, I realized how misleading it can be to musicians. And I didn't want that to, to be the norm. I didn't want a guitarist who is talented um, and who is experiencing an injury that, you know, something weird's happening with their finger or with their wrist or whatever, that they are being put into this category that it's an incurable disease or that it's like a, something neurological that can't be fixed which is how it is right now. So um, I shared my experience because I wanted to tell people that that's not the case. That actually each one of these uh, occurrences uh, with our fingers and our hands, physical occurrences, um, um, usually is uh, provoked by something which is much less superficial. Uh, you talked about burnout in that interview. I wonder at what point during the process of recovery did you did you understand and acknowledge that it was burn, or that it was contributed by burnout um, but did you recall at what point in the process I realized it after I have explored all the logical possibilities and uh, everywhere I went it was like oh it's nothing major and then two weeks later oh you will never recover um, that's what you were hearing mm. and and that was terrifying because it went on for about a year. And then because uh, the stress levels um, of needing to recover and of, of, of having to go back there, because, you know, I had this huge career waiting all the time. Like, little, we were cancelling three months of concerts because it was always like, oh, it's nothing major, it will recover. And then it doesn't. And then it's like the psychological impact it had on me was awful. And I really didn't have anyone to talk about it with. So, so every uh, time you went for one of those consultations where what you thought had been 
a short recovery actually you were told you wouldn't re- over, you you will never recover recover yeah, from it so was there no one else that you you were ha- handling that on your own i was handling it on my own of course i had the wonderful support mechanism of my family and my friends and my management and the label and everyone was incredible um but um, um specifically i really couldn't find any answers in anyone or anywhere um and that was really hard because i think my burnout didn't really come from be- from the actual injury or from before the injury but it actually came from those experiences because it just went on for too long and and i felt more and more lost each time i was hearing that so i had to in 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 this sense face the absolute worst possibilities so the great thing about that is that now i feel like nothing can ever go wrong because i've seen it all and i've gone through it all and that gives me an incredible um feeling of control and of of uh, understanding of myself and of what i'm doing and and this is great but there was a very very strong chance i would never arrive to that point and maybe i would have been an economist today if i wasn't as stubborn or as as really as in love with music as i was I'm from Montenegro which is I mean I didn't I, want to make any assumptions but iconically stubborn people and uh, I'm also a Taurus. Right. Okay. But but would determined tenacious be better words than stubborn? I mean there are connotations with stubborn. I, I think I think stubborn is a good word because I think it can it can also um it allows you to push through the impossible. Uh I think determined or um I think perseverance is a very nice word. Right. Um I don't know. Uh but I think I think my stubbornness has positive and negative connotations. How does that affect you negatively? Um I I very often don't see left and right. How do you mean? I mean I just if I if I if I want something I go straight and I don't really I'm not I'm not flexible. Right. And that's the sort of negative stubbornness. That sounds manageable. I mean it <laughs> doesn't sound that negative. Or or I'm stubborn if I have some convictions and then I really believe in them, then it's very hard to convince me otherwise, but I do listen, so I am sensible. Uh there are um this may seem a little odd, but there are a, 
there is a, a contrast for me, almost like a contradiction, which is rooted in my assumptions about the instrument. I hear, with, a, with an acoustic guitar, I hear delicacy and precision and, and clarity and almost fragility. Uh, and then I hear you talking about stubbornness and sort of pushing through and, and that perseverance thing. And, I, and I, I find those two things are at odds with one another. Does that... Do you, do you see what I mean? Do I see exactly what you mean. And I think that combining those two qualities is exactly the reason why I have a career. Because uh, guitar is one of the most um, fine, intricate things to master. Um, and uh, it's a tiny little bit like uh, fine... Uh, uh, fine jewelry making or watchmaking. Everything is under a microscope and and it's uh, or under a magnifying glass. It's a very delicate thing. And and when we are training uh, to, to to be the best version artistically of who we are, we have to focus on such small detail. Um, and this is one side of things. But if you stay stuck in that world, then there is absolutely no communication. And uh, because it's so hard to do that and the instrument is so quiet and so intimate, then when you go on stage, it happens a lot of the times that you know you have a great, great, great player, a great musician, but it, there, is no, there is no communication with the audience because in order to, to, to stay um, in that perfect zone, you can't really get out of the small little world around you. Um, but um, because maybe of my life or where I was brought up or the kind of person that I am, I actually I got a kick not just from that. I got a kick from actually when I take the guitar and when I play for people that I'm just taking it out there and that I am taking what I have learned and just putting it for everybody to enjoy, not just selfishly enjoying it myself. Is it a, is it a lonely existence? No. Oh, sorry, existence is not the right word at all. But, but. Well, I think existence is okay because it is an existence because every aspect of your life is conditioned by, by the profession uh, because it's an all-consuming type of profession. Um, so it is existence. That's why when I was going through the injury, it was scary because it was my whole existence and I didn't have other aspects of life developed, which was great to have the pause to develop other aspects of life and feel as a more, more well-rounded person. But um, is it a lonely existence to be a concert artist playing an instrument like the guitar and traveling the world and playing for thousands of people? No, it isn't. It's an amazing existence and, and it's, it's such a privilege. Are you being self-effacing? You, you describe it as a privilege. Is it not a reflection of talent? It's a bit of both. Okay. Um, it's a reflection of talent, of course, but... Like, what is talent? I mean, it's a, it's a very... Oh, we can dissect it into, into the smallest, smallest details, but... Um, I, I struggle with the word privilege, you see. Not, not, because, not because of the cultural war. It's a bit of a... It's a bit it of feels a, a little uh, bit hand-wringy. Yeah, see, it is. It's like when you say, oh, I'm humbled by this <laughs> award. It's like, you just don't say <laughs> stuff Take like the that. Award exactly, and just, you're not humbled by it, you're an... Arrogant <laughs> prick. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, you've obviously not said that when you've collected an award, uh, but it might be worth bearing in mind. Um, tell me about the Sound of Silence album. I I have this assumption too that that supported you uh, at, towards the end of your recovery. Have you seen my other albums? Uh, I have, yes. Yeah. So. 
I think with that album what I wanted to do, I wanted to see how far I can push um, the music that I just simply enjoyed. Because as a classical guitarist I've always been very very aware and sensitive to, um, to thinking mm, if I'm doing this, am I being too core? If I'm doing this, am I selling out? If I'm doing that, whatever. And then, you know, you're a little bit like a tree on the wind. Every different influence is moving you. And when you have this, the setup and the system that I'm lucky to have, it's, uh, it's sometimes very hard to, to, to see all the currents and how they create this whirlwind um, of ideas. Um, and actually with The Sound of Silence it was the first time when I was making an album when I actually thought I don't care about any of this I'm just going to see how far I can push just the music that I kind of like that at the time of my recovery I was listening to to maybe escape from classical world maybe escape from the classical guitar when I was having my friends around the music we would listen to you know it's just I just wanted to play um, and and I thought now is the moment to do that because of what I've gone through. I don't feel that I have to really prove anything to anyone except to myself uh, because I just want to see if this works and I'm very proud of that album. But I think also, you know, I've kind of got it out of my system and I, and I, and I like it, but now I try when playing two-hour solo recitals and going back to my Bach and Villa Lobos and, and uh, Albanese suites and, and all that it's just I think it's important to keep it always fresh and to, to, to inspire yourself with different things uh, you anticipated a question that I wanted to ask you that was the second one that I had uh, mulled over on the way here um, which is it's, it appears to me that as a acoustic guitarist a Spanish guitarist a guitarist um, uh, we'll get the terminology right eventually. So that you is it? Is there really? Is it okay? Shall we? Go to, let's just pick no. over that then. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll part that for later. Uh, that um, you you exist in in the ideal world because of that 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 thing, which I think probably only really happens in the UK. The distinction between core classical and classically inspired, or transcriptions, or arrangements, or what might be described as gateway tracks you exist in that in that perfect sweet spot um, yeah, well yeah I'm putting yeah. it to you, do, you that you do and that may be because of the instrument because there isn't as much repertoire as there are for other instruments uh, or it might be because that is a conscious choice on your part it's not I'm, I mean um, I mean you talked about how you struggled with is this core or is, is it am I, am I selling out or am I that, that's really what I'm you know about. when I was a student at the academy um, I didn't understand something so I came from Montenegro which was in 2000 uh, it was like landing on Mars it was just like arriving to London and studying there 20 years ago was a huge change and the reason why I came to London was because I wanted to be the best musician I could be to get the best education and to be in a city that is going to give me the opportunity to play for as many people as possible because Playing guitar made me happy, and I wanted to to share that, and I shared it all my life, since I was a child. And then I came to London, and the better I got, and the more confident I got, and the more um, ambitious I got, uh, the more I realized that actually there was this uh, perceived notion that as a classical guitarist you can't really have a career. Um, and 
And I was very often ignoring it uh, because I just thought that that's just silly. It's like, why not? Uh, this music is so beautiful and, and in a way much more accessible to, to a general public than the music, uh, real core music for the violin or the piano or the cello. Um, but um, an example was I went to see uh, with my colleagues from the Academy. There was a concert being put at the Albert Hall. It was some collaboration with the Academy and I don't remember exactly. And we were there and I said to, 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 to a guitarist calling of mine, I said, it's always been my dream. I will play a solo recital here one day. And they really, I, I, I swear to you, thought I was crazy. And for me, that was just completely normal because I thought, why not? And then when I graduated, um, I, um, I caught attention of uh, some record labels and um, because I was playing every single possible concert I could. I played for church societies, for music societies. I went to, to uh, uh, you know, it was, it was the sort of concerts where you would play for 70 pounds, you know, or, or for nothing, or just for expenses. Um, but I wanted to play. And by doing that, there was suddenly quite a lot of people that liked what I was doing. Um, and... Um, and at the same time, I was desperate to have an agent because I wasn't going to get the record deal if I didn't have an agent. And everywhere I went, same story again. You've, we tried with guitar in the past, since John Williams, since Bream, you know, with, with, there's just not enough opportunity. And that was really hard because um, that's where I needed to be stubborn. Uh, because I think if I wasn't stubborn or if I had a plan B, I would have never done it. Um, so the fact that I went through that and then the opportunities opened and then I really, I was right. Um, and suddenly I found myself living exactly that sort of dream and fantasy that I had. Um, was, I think, what created that sweet spot you're talking about. Well, as in it gave you permission. Yeah, <clears throat> because I got there because I wasn't precious because I wanted to inspire and to play for as many people as possible, because my repertoire choices were always a combination of things that I was lucky to like, because I was lucky not to just be turned on by very core repertoire, but I also, you know, liked funkier things. Um, and, and, and I then saw that the reaction of the people to those things was stronger, and, and then it became this sort of a balancing act. Um, but also, um, had I been signed to a smaller label, maybe I would have focused more on the core side of things. But because I, I got signed to Universal and there was a huge um, um, uh, setup and focus on, on what I was doing, um, I also got inspired by that. So I think I was suddenly open to their ideas as well. Um, it's and in this way, I'm a very collaborative person. It's very interesting to hear you describe that because as, a, as an outsider who, as I said before, looks at a lot of PR stuff and a lot of marketing, I do unwittingly uh, and reasonably well-meaningly make assumptions about uh, a particular artist's trajectory. And I don't mean you necessarily, but just generally, because you see a lot of images and you see a lot of labels. And, and, and I make assumptions about an artist according to what label they're yeah. signed to. 
and I didn't anticipate that you would say, well, actually, by signing to Universal, that helped me. That that's, that helped me cover all of this range of repertoire. Absolutely. And it was, it was very um, educational because when you are part of that, you are actually part of the way the world of music moves. And, and, and that gives you information that you don't have if you are not in that setup. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe, it's a, uh, maybe it's, a, it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know, maybe I would be a much more authentic artist if I was never part of that. I don't know. I'm not making that judgment. I do no, need I, to get I my know. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I know um, you're not making the judgment, but it's a, it's a, I'm just asking that question myself. Um, but you are clearly authentic. Well, I hope so. Yes, I mean clearly. Surely you well, it's not something are. for me to say, but but I I know that I do what I want to do and how I want to do it, and I'm lucky that it works for a lot of people. I think that is the definition of authenticity, isn't it? You are living the life that you want to live, doing the thing that you want to do, and you're satisfying the audience. There you Yay! <laughs> some errors about how to describe the instrument that you play. I'd like to revisit that and I'd like you to give me the, the appropriate definition, please. Um, if I'm describing my instrument um, emotionally, um, the one thing that makes me feel so lucky is that by playing something so intimate and so personal and something that, after a human voice, is probably the most directly connected to your body, um, you are able to create an incredible world around yourself which um, you can then share with everyone in front of you. And no matter what is happening in the big outside world around you, you are able to, with your music, kind of embrace everyone. And, and I think guitar, because of its very, very um, um, intimate quality, is able to achieve in a way that is just very unique. But the guitar that most audience members would recognize as the guitar uh, was the development of a man whose name I can't remember in the 1850s, and he was Spanish. So is it not a Spanish guitar? I'm needling you now. Right, so um, <laughs> the guitar started, started to rise in the early 19th century. Yes. Um, when from being a very, very small household instrument that uh, uh, ladies of rich, um, wives of rich men in Vienna and Paris uh, and in the courts of Spain and Portugal were playing to just be able to sing opera arias and accompany them because that was the pop music of the time. Um, 
it, it started to evolve itself into an instrument that was developing its technique. And that was developed by Sor Giuliani Carcassi, which were these three virtuoso guitarists that were traveling Europe and teaching these ladies to actually play the guitar properly. And then at the end of, towards the end of the 19th century, the Spanish guitar maker Torres made what we called the modern guitar. That's why some people say, oh, you play Spanish guitar. It's not technically Spanish, it's just guitar. Okay. Um, okay. Because guitar existed in other countries as well. But because of the flamenco association, which is the Spanish folk music, people assume that it's the same thing, but it's actually two different things. You there must are, be a hooch at parties when people say that. There are lines. Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, but when people ask me what do you play, I, I don't even say I play classical guitar. I say I just play guitar because I think that just defines how I feel about my instrument um, in a much better way than if I say, oh, I play classical guitar. Because when you say classical guitar, people think, you know, you're playing, you know, just yes. these very small. It's like, and it's, it's, it's different. Yeah, I'm a classical guitarist, but I play guitar. Uh, you're all about the detail, aren't you? Yeah. I can tell. Uh, you love detail. Yeah. Um, uh, is it? Is the guitar world um, competitive? Is there a sense of competition between you and other guitarists? Don't name them. Do you think? No, I'm asking you. I mean, you live in that world, so I'm asking you. I don't think so. I think my career is pretty um, isolated in a way. Because... What I do with my instrument, I think, is, is put me in that position. Um, but also, I mean, it's, it's a, when, I record, when, I started, when I released my first album, um, it was amazing what we were able to achieve in the sense of moving it, not just for me, but for the whole world of guitarists because at that point you know you wouldn't see a guitar recital in any of the major festivals or any of the major programs of opera of seasons in uh, orchestras or anything like that and then suddenly it changed and in the beginning it was just me doing it and then and then you know there was a younger generation and I think they now have more opportunities so in that sense I take that role very very seriously because I'm the guy who popularizes it and then there are amazing guitarists out there who are playing so beautifully um, and and I get inspired by that too but I feel that we are doing completely different things so in that sense I don't feel that there is really competition and I think that thinking of competition is very unhealthy anyway because I think if you are focused on someone else you can never develop who you are um, and uh, and I was never that person I never thought, oh, I wish I could play like this person one day. And I always say this to students, what you have to understand is life, that there is no one in this world who can play like you. Not because it's better or worse, but just because it's you. And it possesses your unique qualities. And that's your biggest asset. Uh, when was the last time, how many years ago, were you playing a concert for expenses? <laughs> for charity? Yeah, no, okay, not not a charity concert. I'm talking about you. You know, you you talked about doing a circuit of concerts where you were doing it for experience. I want to to get a sense of when that last was. A long time ago, because there's no time. Ten, twelve years ago. Yeah, I think about right. Um, but um, what I enjoy very, very much is that if. Uh, 
a very very close group of friends comes together and we haven't seen each other for a long time and we just gather some people and I need to try some repertoire then I do it I just play I only ask because when I reflect on uh, what has changed for me over the past 10 or 12 years and I and then I reflect on what's changed for you that that's some some rise at some speed of development and I wonder to what extent that might have contributed to your injury well that's a very fair point because um, and I really see my injury now from because now it's been two years since I'm fully back on the on the on the concert platform and um, and I see the period of 18 months that I actually wasn't playing at all um, as an integral if not uh, equally important part of my education um, so I don't separate the two things I can see my life before and my life after and I see it as a, just a different chapter um, but and uh, and with a different set of priorities um, and also it's not the same when you are 28 or when you are 35 it's a it's a you just things start to be different but uh, has it contributed to my injury yeah I think it has just led to that point in my life where I had to stop playing in order to figure things out to re-aliven the love for music to re-aliven the uh, the things which made me become a musician in the first place and here I am again and it's it's a it's a great place to be but in the beginning uh, when from playing you know as you said just for expenses or uh, in a little music society in Devon or um, you know in a lunchtime church concert in an obscure part of London um, and then you are in Tokyo one day, two days later in LA, then in Amsterdam, and then at the proms. Um, and you're the only one doing it, all the eyes are on you, everyone is so incredibly critical about every note you play, there are suddenly major reviews, major things, you have to release an album, there's a deadline, there is a, there, there's like, it was really hard. But it was all I ever wanted. So... And that is quite an unusual... That's quite an unusual thing. I mean, you made your dreams a reality. Yeah, and, and I always say that on a subconscious level, my injury happened at the point when I actually could have an injury, at the point when I achieved all of my dreams and ideas. Because at that point, I actually played exactly everywhere. There was not nowhere where I said, oh, I wish I played there. Like, no, I, just, I did it. Yeah, it happened at the right time. It happened at the right time so that I could evolve into something new now. And that's exciting. You're quite a positive thinker, aren't you? Yeah, I am today. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've obviously got you on the right day. That's you good. got me on the right day. No, um, I'm generally a very positive person, and I'm not a moaner. Um, right. And okay. I'm, a, I'm a, I, I don't know. I just believe that if you um, have trust in yourself, and if you, if you, even on a worst day. If the underlying energy of the worst day is still positive, then sky's the limit. Dear God, I mean that's 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 a nice that's a nice out. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good.
You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.